0: as you may know, if you've watched any of my studies before, I'm a pretty big fan of C.S. Lewis. And to this day, I still remember one of the first books of his I ever read. I couldn't have been more than 13 or 14 at the time. The name of the book was A Grief Observed. And it was a sort of memoir, a, a series of journal entries that he wrote right after the tragic death of his wife, Joy Davidman. He was chronicling everything that he thought and felt in the wake of her death. And when I look back on it now, I've got to admit that it wasn't really the most appropriate thing for a 13-year-old. It's very heavy and raw and brutally honest and pretty unnerving in its expression of pain and grief. Like when Lewis says, rather early on in the book, I suppose that if one were forbidden all salt, one wouldn't notice it much more in any one food than in another. Eating in general would be different, every day, at every meal. It's like that. The act of living is different all through. Her absence is like the sky, spread over everything. Or then, as he says a little bit later on, Talk to me about the truth of religion, and I'll listen gladly. Talk to me about the duty of religion, and I'll listen submissively. But don't come talking to me about the consolations of religion, or I shall suspect you don't understand. Uh, Pretty much the whole book is like that. Constantly moving back and forth between sadness and anger and doubt and protest It's very different from other things that he wrote. But even as a young teenager, there was something about it that, something that felt important to me. Because even though I hadn't experienced the kind of pain that I could hear and feel in his voice, I knew that this anger and sorrow and grief, that it was all justified. And that even amidst all of the doubts and the questions that he was voicing, that he was saying something that was truthful, but also something that I really didn't hear very much in church. What I was used to hearing in church in Christian crowds wasn't people talking about pain or suffering or grief, but about how wonderful everything is and how blessed we all are and how joyful we should be. Of course, there's truth to all of that, but By itself, it just didn't feel honest. It didn't feel true to the way that things really are. Because the truth is that, yes, even though God is good, and even though He does fill our hearts with joy, the truth is that there's still a lot of things that are deeply, deeply wrong. Loved ones die, marriages fail. People are forced to abandon their homes and family and everything they've known because of war and violence. And as much as we like to think that things are getting better, well, the truth is, in many ways, they're just not. Several years ago, the United Nations released a report claiming that 2014 was one of the worst years on record in recorded history for the well-being of children. In that year, 230 children, 230 million children lived in countries torn apart by armed conflict. And millions more experienced daily poverty and abuse. Anthony Lake, who was the director of UNICEF at the time, he summarized the report this way. Children have been killed while studying in the classroom. And while sleeping in their beds, they have been orphaned, kidnapped, tortured, recruited, and even sold as slaves. That's the world as it really is. And I think that's why I was so drawn to the the anger and sadness of that book I read as a teenager. But the truth is, there really wasn't anything that unique about the anger and sorrow that Lewis was expressing in that book. The Bible itself, in fact, is filled with examples of people reacting in much the same way. Prophets of Israel tear their clothes and weep and lament at the sin of God's people and the destruction, the human destruction that comes in its wake. And Jesus himself, we read in the Gospels, is overcome with anger and sorrow when he visits Lazarus's grieving family. And the Psalms, well, I don't know if you know this, but do you know that nearly 40% of the entire book of Psalms are made up of songs of lament? But in all of the Bible, there is perhaps no book that is more direct or more poignant in its sorrow Than the book of Lamentations. It's a short book, only five chapters, five poems to be precise. But don't let the length fool you. Lamentations is powerful. And for millennia, it has been read and reread by Jews and Christians alike as a resource to help them grapple with their own experiences of grief and loss to give them language as they mourn. But that's not the only reason that this book is so powerful. Lamentations isn't just an expression of grief. It's also a book that contains deep and abiding faith. So you see, it's not just for those who weep. It's for those who want to weep in faith. Now, over the next five sessions, we'll be looking more closely at this book But in this first session, I'd like to just make a couple observations about the book as a whole and the content of chapter one in particular. So first, a couple introductory remarks. As you're reading Lamentations, it's helpful to know something about its original historical context. In the year 587 B.C., the inhabitants of the city of Jerusalem, they they lived for nearly two decades under almost constant threat by the powerful Babylonian empire. A decade earlier, in the year 597, the king of Judah had tried to stage a rebellion against the Babylonians, but he'd been quickly defeated. In his place, the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, Appointed a man named Zedekiah to be the new king of Judah. Nebuchadnezzar expected Zedekiah to serve as a king, but also as a loyal vassal to him, to follow his orders. But then, after ten years, Zedekiah too tried to rebel against Babylon. So, in 587, the Babylonians they brought their army back to Judah. But this time, they weren't as lenient as they'd been before. This time they laid siege to the city of Jerusalem and then they tore it down completely. Uh, Many of the citizens of Jerusalem, they died either by the sword or from starvation. Others were carted off to Babylon. King Zedekiah was forced to watch his sons executed in front of him. And he was then blinded and taken away as a prisoner. And Jerusalem, the city of Zion, the city of David, the pride and joy of the nation of Israel, it was utterly destroyed. And its people were either killed or taken away as hostages. Only the poorest of the land, were told, in Second Kings chapter 25, where we read about this story. Only the poorest of the land, only those of no consequence remained. But to this day... Other than the Holocaust of the 20th century, there are perhaps no more traumatic events in the entire history of the Jewish people. And that was the event that lay behind this book of Lamentations. That is what these poems are responding to. But having said that about its context, the natural question to ask next is, well, who wrote these poems? Who is the author of Lamentations? Well, traditionally, the person who has been associated with this book is actually the man who is behind the book of prophecy that comes right before it in English Bibles, the Jewish prophet Jeremiah. Uh, There are a number of reasons for this. We know, for instance, that Jeremiah lived through the destruction of Jerusalem. He was prophesying all the way up until it. We also know that he composed songs of lament because they're mentioned in 2 Chronicles chapter 35. And some of the language and perspective that you find in Lamentations resembles parts of the book of Jeremiah. Maybe even more important, though, is the fact that many of the oldest translations of the Old Testament, including the Greek and the Syriac and the Latin translations, They all attribute Lamentations to Jeremiah. At the same time, many modern scholars have put forward arguments questioning whether Jeremiah really wrote this book. For our purposes, it doesn't really actually matter that much. Nowhere in the book itself does the author name himself. And it really makes no great difference to our interpretation of it whether it was Jeremiah who wrote it or not. So for that reason, when I mention the author, I won't refer to him by name. I'll just say the author or the poet. Uh, Finally, before we jump into chapter one, I want to say something briefly about the poetic structure of the book. As I said before, Lamentations is divided into five poems. Uh, The first four of these are acrostic poems which means that in Hebrew, each verse begins with a subsequent letter of the alphabet. Uh, The first verse begins with the Hebrew equivalent of A, the letter Aleph. Uh, The second with the equivalent of B, the third with C, and so on and so forth. Now, there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. So as you'll notice, each of the poems is 22 verses long, except except for chapter 3. Chapter 3 repeats each of these letters three times, and it's three times as long as all the others. It's 66 verses long. And in many ways, it's really the heart of the book. Now, all of that's very interesting, of course, but maybe the most important thing to say about it is to repeat, about the structure, is to repeat an observation that's been made by an Old Testament scholar named Leslie Allen. Now, he points out that the poetic structure is there for a reason. Because the purpose of the book, he says, is that it's actually written and meant to serve as a kind of liturgical script. It's a liturgy that is meant to help teach God's people how to grieve. In fact, that's exactly how Jews have been using it for centuries as a liturgy that they use in remembering the destruction of Jerusalem. And it's a liturgy that builds from one chapter to the next. These poems, well, as he puts it, these poems work toward an intended goal. That goal is the congregational prayer, which represents not the closure of grief, but a turning point in the grieving that bravely, And even defiantly challenges their suffering and expresses a longing to move beyond it. So that's the goal of lamentations. Not just to give people language as they grieve, nor to shut down or dismiss their grief. But to teach them how to move through their grief and suffering into prayer and into brave and defiant faith. Okay, so with all of that out of the way, what do we learn from this first chapter? Well, maybe the first and most obvious thing to say is it's pretty brutal. There is no word of comfort in this chapter. In fact, there isn't even really any hope for comfort. The poet begins by describing the city of Jerusalem as a woman who has lost her husband, been abandoned by her lovers and friends, constantly harassed and threatened by those who wish her harm, and mocked by all who see her. Her wealth, her security, her family and friends, even her very dignity has been stripped and stolen from her. And now, the poet says, Now all that is left for her, it seems, is to sit there, weeping in her shame, with no hope for the future. She, on her part, groans and has fallen back. Her uncleanness is in her skirts. She has no mind of her future, and she plunges wondrously. There is none to console her. And then after describing the despair of Jerusalem in verse 12 the poet does something different. He begins to let the people of Jerusalem speak for themselves with using the voice of a personified woman who represents the city. And it's clear that when this woman speaks that her pain doesn't just come from the grief but also from guilt In verse 12, she speaks of the wrath of God. And and then two verses later in verse 14, she talks about her transgressions. And, And that's important. Just because a person, or in this case, a whole city of people, is experiencing some kind of pain and suffering, that doesn't mean that they are experiencing the consequences of their own wrongdoing. The Bible is very clear on that point. But in this particular case, when Jerusalem was destroyed, it was indeed a direct consequence of Judah's rebellion against God and their refusal to return in obedience to him. Uh, Jeremiah had made that clear for decades as he preached to the people and called them to repent, and they didn't listen. And now in Lamentations, we are hearing the voice of a people who grieve not only what has happened to them, but also they grieve because of how deeply aware they are of their own guilt and complicity. As the voice of Jerusalem says in verse 18, righteous is the Lord, for I have rebelled against him. Uh, You might expect Jerusalem to respond to all of this by asking for God's forgiveness, praying for some kind of redemption. Uh, But for now... At least that doesn't happen. There is no petition for deliverance in this chapter. No plea for the guilt or grief to be removed. The only request that we hear is a request for attention. Look, look at my pain. Listen to the words of my grief. Three times in verses 9 and then 11 and then verse 20, the woman speaking on behalf of Jerusalem pleads for God not to take away her pain or sorrow, but just to look at her. And then twice in verses 12 and 18, she turns to those around her and she asks them to see her pain and hear and listen to her cries. And that simple request to look, and to listen. It teaches us something profound about how we ought to respond to the suffering around us. Uh, The Catholic theologian, Paul Griffiths, he says that at its heart, that's really what lament is all about. The heart of lament, he says, is acknowledgement. Those who weep are seeing and responding to a truth, acknowledging it for what it is, and refusing to avert their gaze from it. And that's not easy to do. If you're anything like me, your first instinct when confronted with the pain or suffering of another person is often to avert your gaze or maybe to try to offer some words of comfort that that can just take away or diminish the pain. But what we learn from the book of Lamentations is that sometimes, maybe more often than not, our first response shouldn't be to avert our gaze or to simply try to lessen another's suffering. Sometimes the first and the most faithful thing we can do is just to look and listen to acknowledge another's pain and grief for what it is. Or as St. Paul put it, to weep with those who weep. That's just what Jesus did when he visited Mary and Martha after the death of their brother Lazarus. And that is what Jerusalem wanted in the wake of her destruction by Babylon. Because that is the first step in grieving faithfully. Not to put on a smile, not to fix the problem, but just to acknowledge it, to look and listen.